0: Well, good evening, Reliance Church. It's great to be with you. Uh, It's a joy to be able to bring God's Word to you. And so if you would, would you turn with me to Matthew 27? Matthew 27. We're going to be reading a large chunk of Scripture tonight. I believe it's important on this Good Friday that we get kind of a good, big picture of what is happening at Jesus' arrest and eventual crucifixion, that we take a, a large view of what's actually happening and the peripheral people around him, how they're involved in this. And so if you're there at Matthew 27, we'll pick it up in verse 11. It says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Having nothing to do with that, ma- with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude, multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then should I do? Should I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. And so Pilate sentences Jesus to be crucified. The guards grab him. They place a crown of thorns on his head and then jump down to verse 32. We pick it up here where it says, Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene named, named Simon. Him they compelled to bear his cross, and when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross." Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it for him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. A few weeks ago, I was at Starbucks. I was actually working on a message to preach at Reliance. And I came home around dinner time and I walked through the front door and everything was normal. Uh, My wife was getting dinner ready. My daughter Haven was playing. And a few minutes later, my wife and I just kind of turned to each other almost at the same time and said are you feeling well? all of a sudden we were both feeling sick and nauseous it was just very strange and we didn't think much of it and so we began to have dinner together as a family my wife put our daughter Haven in her high chair and as soon as she put her in her high chair my daughter Haven just started looking like she was going to fall asleep almost like she was going to pass out and then my wife put her dinner down on her high chair and Immediately, my daughter Haven just threw up. And immediately, I was alarmed by this as my wife and I were feeling sick. I just thought, something's not right about this. And and my daughter Haven continued to, to throw up and threw up four to five times. And honestly, we were pretty scared. We were pretty alarmed. And so, for some reason, I just thought, the thought came to my head, there's something not right. Get outside the house. The air is not clean. There's there's something toxic in the air. There's Maybe this is a gas leak. We we need to get outside the house. And so my wife took our daughter Haven outside the house. And luckily, we live right down the street from a fire station. And so I thought I wouldn't call 911. I didn't want um, the distress and all of the fire engines to come onto our street and to just cause a scene. So I I drove down to the fire station and spoke with the chief. And he said, yeah, it sounds like a gas leak will come up right away and check on it. Just stay outside of the house. And so the fire department came and they checked and fortunately, there's a good end of the end of the story. We're totally fine. Our family is totally okay. But see, there was no doubt in my mind that we had a serious problem. The air was just too toxic. The toxicity was so high. It was physically sickening. Something had to be wrong. Now, the crucifixion of Jesus, it says something about God. It says something wonderful about God. It says something remarkable about God. It speaks of God's love. It speaks of God's faithfulness, right? Jesus himself says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life. Paul says that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so we sing about the cross. We wear crosses around our necklaces. And we glory in the cross because the cross says something remarkable about God. But hear me tonight, church. The cross does not just say something about God. The cross says something about humanity. There is a toxicity around the cross that points to a severe problem. There's this foul air around the cross that speaks to the tragic brokenness and evil of humanity. And the text we just read picks it up right in the middle of the story, but before this, Jesus was betrayed by one of his good friends, and then Jesus is betrayed by the rest of his followers. He's tried throughout the night, and then he's tried again. It's a story where Through injustice, fear, and manipulation, both religious people and pagan people, both Jesus' friends and Jesus' enemies, individuals and crowds, strangers and followers, all come together to beat and mock and accuse and betray and murder the only one in human history to walk the earth with perfect righteousness and to see the world through untainted eyes. See, there's this toxic air around the cross that points to the tragic reality that the crucifixion of Jesus is humanity at its worst. It's too overwhelming to ignore or deny. In fact, Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, in the cross, God allows Himself to be pushed out of the world and onto the cross. Pushed out by who? His own creation those He loved and healed, those that followed Him. Okay, so maybe you're wondering, why are we talking about this? Like, if the cross says something about God's love, then why don't we just talk about that? That's positive, right? But here's why. Unless we feel the offense of what the cross says about humanity, and specifically, unless we feel the offense of what the cross says about me and what the cross says about you— we will not savor or respond as we should to what it says about God. And hear me tonight, Reliance Church, we have to fight to see that because the natural message of our culture and the natural pull of our own hearts is not wanting us to see that as we should. It's not putting that message before us in a way that's clear because the message in our culture is that humanity is basically good. That at a base level, the average human is good or at least morally neutral, goodness is really subjective, it's, it's undefined. And so we hear people say that goodness is making sure that you're happy. But what if being happy cost me my marriage and my family because I want to cheat on my spouse? Well, you have to be true to yourself, right? You can't deny how you feel. Okay, well, what if what I want is not what's best for other people around me? Well, you can't deny yourself, right? So there's no standard of goodness that's defined by self-denial or self-sacrifice or self-control. No, now goodness is defined by self-indulgence. And in that kind of moral climate, the death of Jesus just doesn't make sense. This Holy Week, I've been reading a book by Fleming Rutledge called The Crucifixion. And in this book, she talks about how in the early 80s, PBS did a series on Christianity called The Christians. And when they got to the cross, they were really perplexed. And the narrator said some comments around the cross. And I think it captures the the culture's reaction to the death of Jesus. He says this. He says, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its focus the suffering and degradation of its God. The crucifixion is so familiar to us, it is hard to realize how unusual it is as an image of God. And then Rutledge makes this comment in her book. She says, it appears wrenchingly unsuitable to have a crucifixion as an object of faith. Wrenchingly unsuitable. See, Rome had perfected to a science how to humiliate and dehumanize rebels. It was crucifixion. It was barbaric. In fact, in the first century, Roman authors and poets didn't even talk about crucifixion because they considered it to be too barbaric and uncivil. So for Christianity to put Jesus' death as the crux, as the center of all we believe, it appears confusing and unusual, right? Unless humanity is really that evil. And unless unless sin really costs that much, unless the sum total of all of my sin and the sum total of all of your sin appropriately amounts to the mangled body and disfigured face of the God in human flesh. This confronts all of our cultural sensibilities, doesn't it? Here in suburban Southern California where everything appears so clean and safe and sanitized, See, our culture doesn't want us to believe that we're that bad, and our hearts don't want us to believe that we're that responsible. Yes, the Jews brought Jesus to trial, and the Romans would ultimately carry out the sentence, but what the Bible teaches specifically is that it's my sin that he died for. It was my sin that held him there. Jesus in love goes to the cross for me. But you know, there are days when I function as if someone somewhere else out there is more responsible than I am. Like our culture just loves the idea of equality, right? Equal values, equal rights. Yeah, until it comes to my own guilt. We love to talk about justice until it's the the injustice that I've caused. But when we're talking about sin and the penalty of sin... Surely someone out there is far more guilty than I am. So between a culture that says we're not that bad and our hearts that say we're not that responsible, the cross says something about humanity that we just don't want to hear. It naturally just rubs us the wrong way. But if you remember, that's not how the disciples reacted. When they saw the resurrected Jesus, they still referred to Him as the crucified Jesus. They never forgot. Throughout the book of Acts, they refer to Jesus as the one whom you crucified. Paul says, I decided to to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. The cross says something about God, but it also says something heartbreaking about humanity. And it's good for us not to just try and shy away from that but for us to be reminded over and over and over again so that we might savor Christ all the more. And one of the ways that that happens and that becomes personal for us is when we put ourselves in the story. Listen, what they did to Jesus then is not a story of what they did to Him one time in human history. It's the story of what we all do in our sin. It's a story about what's true about all of us. And listen, the toxicity around the cross that points to the problem of human brokenness, the toxicity that we see coming out of this narrative has the tendency to come out of me. And maybe it comes out of you. We see it when we read this story. In verse 39, we see it in those who mock Jesus. And so picking it back up in verse 39, it says this, it says, And those who passed by blasphemed Him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved himself, others he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. So Jesus is passed around to several groups of people. He's before the Jewish council, and then he goes to the Roman soldiers, and then he goes back to the Jewish leaders. And there's something that they do to him that they all have in common. They all mock him. All of them take time in the process to stop and to mock him. See, one of the images that I think we have of the crucifixion is that Jesus was taken far away and he was led up a mountain to this old rugged cross and there were just a few people who were there to crucify him and a few people there to assault him and a few people there to grieve over him. But the reality is that that is not how Rome did crucifixion. That's not what happened. For Rome, crucifixion was used as a warning to deter rebels from uprising. They would take men and they would crucify them along major roads and they would nail them to a tree or a post just a few feet above the ground. So one of the Gospels talks about those who'd come and spit on Jesus' face. They were able to spit on His face because they were just a few feet above Him. Uh, uh, He was just a few feet above them. If they had crucified Jesus today, they would have taken Him to the middle of Old Town Temecula so that all the cars and the pedestrians could come and see Him. Some people try to compare the cross to the electric chair. But unfortunately, that analogy doesn't really work because at least someone is given the electric chair. At least when when they're given the electric chair, they don't have a large audience watching, right? And their face was covered so that no one could see their facial expressions. For Jesus, though... He would have had a large audience watching him hang there. Hang there completely naked, face beaten in and disfigured, exposed to public shaming and mockery. There's something foul about that, right? There's something toxic about this, to hear them them talk about him that way. And here's the thing, in their mocking of him, they're stripping him of the very things that they know to be true about him. They say, come down and we will believe in you. They don't believe that. They had just seen Jesus heal blind men, men who were paralyzed. He had done all these miracles. It's not like they needed another sign. Despite what they've seen, they're just putting Jesus on trial because they already have their verdict about Him. This is just mockery at this point. And Jesus, in that moment, He has suppressed His power in order to choose weakness. And they respond by delighting in his weakness, weakness by mocking his power. And in mocking him, what they're doing is they're taking advantage of his weakness to make themselves feel superior. One commentator says it like this He says, The one who would be their king was now the punchline of all of their jokes. The air's toxic, isn't it? And listen, this this can come easily out of my own life. Not in the form of blatant mockery, but instead it's this internal practice of putting God to the test. I find myself at times being so cynical. I put God on trial when theologically, theologically I know He is who He is. I know He is who He says He is. But in the dark, I begin to pull His goodness and faithfulness and sovereignty into question. It's this quiet chipping away at the character of God in order to make myself feel superior, this illusion that I'm in control. It's giving ourselves permission to put on trial everyone and everything in our lives except ourselves. And it makes everything else subject to us. It makes me in charge, it makes me king But what does that make Jesus? Mocked, right? The air around the crucifixion scene has come out of my own life. And we have to be careful not to be so arrogant as to think that we would have been any different if we were there on that day. See, I mock God every time I try to take control or try to be king. That's in me, is that in you tonight? We see this again in the crowd before Pilate. Look back with me at verse 15. The crowd is given a choice. It says this, it says, Now at the feast, the governor was uh, accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ. And now jump down with me to verse 21 and 22. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They said to him, let him be crucified. See, Rome is in power at this point in time. And there are a lot of people in the Roman empire who don't like the fact that Rome is in charge Especially the Roman, or especially the Jewish people. And because of that, something would happen pretty frequently. Some patriot, some rebel would get together a band of rebels and they would attack a group of Roman soldiers or they would destroy Roman property as an act of defiance and opposition because they didn't like the fact that these pagan rulers were ruling over them. And Rome would say, okay, if that's how you want to play this, here's what we're going to do. We're going to gather all you rebels up and we're going to crucify you. We're going to line you up along the road and we're going to crucify you. And this happened over and over and over again. This was a common occurrence in the first century. Jesus was not the first person to be crucified. And that had happened at this point in in Jerusalem. There was this guy named Barabbas. Now it's actually left out of most modern translations But in earlier translations and manuscripts, we're told that his name is actually Jesus Barabbas. Listen, this is fascinating because the name Barabbas means Son of the Father. And Jesus means Yahweh saves. So this guy's name literally means Yahweh saves through the Son of the Father. He's this wannabe Messiah whose name actually points to the real Messiah. And he had just had a group of guys that launched this rebellion against Rome, and Rome is ready to squash it. In fact, the two men crucified on Jesus' right and left were most likely part of Barabbas' rebellion. The translation is kind of confusing. It says that they were thieves, but Rome didn't crucify people for stealing. Rome crucified rebels. And so this guy Barabbas is well known, the people love him. To Rome, he's defiant, he's a traitor. But to the people, he's a freedom fighter. He's a patriot. And at Passover, Rome would release one of these Messiah figures, one of their heroes, back to them as an act of kindness. So notice the choice that the crowd is given here. It's Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Christ. Which one do you want? You've got two Messiah figures. You've got two saviors offering very different kinds of salvation. And which one do you want? On the one hand, you've got Jesus Barabbas, who preaches a message of salvation by overthrowing Rome so that you can rule over your own life. And on the other hand, you have Jesus, who is called the Christ, who says to love your enemies and to submit to to his kingly uh, loving kingship. What kind of salvation do you want? Do you want to be delivered from your present circumstances or do you want to be delivered from yourself? They say, We'll take Barabbas. Well, then, what do I do with the one who's called the Christ? Pilate says. See, the greatest problem that you and I have is not that which is outside of us, but that which is inside of us. That which demands that you orient, or orient your life around you. Ever look, for something, ever look for salvation in something other than Jesus Christ? Have you ever propped up something or someone in your life as a functioning Savior? Like maybe as a Christian you've had that moment where you thought the following Jesus would make your life better. That circumstances would change, and then when they didn't change, like you had hoped, there's disappointment as if Jesus is some sort of quick fix to mask the symptom in our life instead of being the king of kings who demands everything, even if the circumstances don't change in our life. How many times have we cried out for the saviors that the world offers? How many times have we said, you know what? Give me the one who offers escape or give me the one who offers the thing that'll mask the pain or the thing that'll provide me comfort. Or actually, you know what? I don't even need a savior at all because I've got this. Just give me Barabbas. Well, then what do we do with the one who's called the Christ? Well, we, we can have both, right? We can have a little of one over here and a little of the other over here. But Jesus says that you cannot serve two masters because you will either, you will love the one and you will hate the other. And what is hatred? Jesus says that hatred is murder of the heart. Look, the godlessness around the cross has come out in my own life. And there are times when my life appears to have spoken out against Jesus. Listen, that's in me. Is that in you? We see it obviously in Peter's betrayal, we see it in the crowd and the, dis- and the disciples that scattered. But there's also this little story that you might miss. But if you put all the Gospel accounts together, there's a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. He's the guy who buries Jesus, and he buries him with a friend named Nicodemus. If you remember, Nicodemus is the one that came to Jesus at night back in John chapter 3. And John's Gospel says that Joseph of Arimathea is a follower of Jesus. He's not one of the twelve, but he is a disciple. And John's Gospel says he's a disciple in secret for fear of the Jews. See, these two guys were highly regarded and well-respected men. In fact, they were members of a council called the Sanhedrin, the very council that accused Jesus the night he was betrayed. So these Jesus followers, Joseph and Nicodemus, were there the night that Jesus was accused. And they were there as His accusers. And maybe they didn't cry out against Him, but they did, definitely didn't cry out for Him. Rather, in their fear, they remained silent. But listen, there's no such thing as private faith when it comes to Jesus. Now, allegiance to Jesus is a public affair, and it always has been. And when my allegiance to Jesus requires me to speak up, there are times where I've been quiet and I've cast my vote against Him in my silence. Have you ever been there? Is that you? Listen, do you see how level the playing field is? Whether it's the Roman soldier driving the nails into his hands, or it's the disciple that's silent out of fear or self-preservation, Do you see the toxicity coming out of them? What the cross says about godless humanity is that man is at war with God. But listen, this is what makes what the cross says about God so incredible, to know that this is the starting place. That what comes out of humanity is evil and wickedness, but what comes out of God is pure love, grace, and mercy. And the two could not be further apart. It's just so scandalous. And at the same time, it's the most beautiful reality. When I was in middle school, I remember going to summer camp one year with our church. And at camp, the first night service was always a salvation message. And so the first night after worship, I remember the preacher got up and he started talking about the death and crucifixion of Jesus. And he had this illustration where he talked about this soldier who's in the middle of combat. And there's bullets flying everywhere, and he's in this foxhole with his fellow soldiers. And then all of a sudden, this grenade from the enemy gets thrown into the foxhole. And in a moment of courage, the soldier jumps on the grenade and absorbs the blast and saves his men. And the preacher looked out at us and he said, that's what Jesus did for you. And no doubt, that was a courageous and heroic act, no question. But I think that illustration captures what we can easily overlook about about the scandal of what Jesus did, because it misses the major distinction between Jesus and every other hero, Jesus and every other Savior, and every other sacrifice. Listen, we weren't on Jesus' side. We don't start off fighting the same battle with Him. No, we were dead in sin. We were enemies to God when Jesus died on the cross. Listen, He does not die for His friends to protect them from their enemies. He dies for His enemies that they might become His friends. And so if what comes out of humanity's, humanity is evil and mockery and idolatry, then what comes out of God is not just pure love and mercy, but also total justice— Not poured out on us as we deserve, but on Jesus who stood in our place for us. See, it's one thing if we were in this place of friendship with God and we're met by His love. And it's another thing if we were in this neutral place and we're met by God's love. But to be His enemies and in opposition with God and to be met on the other side with His unconditional love, it just makes who He is and what He's done that much more secure for us because it can't have anything to do with me, right? My life is just too toxic. The problem of my heart is just still too real. It has to be something in Him. It has to be something about Him, initiated by Him, coming from Him. We can't just muster up enough in us to make ourselves lovable to God. What the cross says about us is that we're part of the problem of evil and brokenness. It's in me, it's in you, But it's not in Him. And that is the point. Listen, Jesus has never mocked you in your weakness. He doesn't demand a better version of you in order to save you. No, when Jesus opens His mouth concerning you, it's to pray on your behalf. Right now, at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is your great high priest. And that's the point. The cross says that we need a Savior, and the cross says that Jesus is the Savior we need. And so in his perfect life, he takes on all of the evil of humanity, and he pays the penalty of sin, not just in his death, but he allows himself to be limited, rejected, abandoned, wounded, and sorrowful. The Bible says that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Hebrews says that he drank the bitter cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. He took upon Himself our sin like it was a disease, allowing Him to be infected so that He could be our cure. And then He cries from the cross, God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, He is rejected by the Father so that we would never have to be. Listen, the cross shows us, shows us that there is a brokenness in humanity that can't be swept under the carpet but it screams even louder that the love of God in Jesus is strong enough to save. Christian, this means that we don't live from a place of trying to make ourselves more lovable to God. Our love is so fickle and wavering, and it's prone to wander, but we aren't saved by the love that we try to exert. We are saved by the love that we can trust. A love that's secure in Jesus. And if you're not a Christian tonight, listen, what the human heart craves more than anything is to be loved when we have nothing to offer. Because in times when we don't have anything to offer, we know we're still loved. A love that's pure without mixed motives, a divine love, a saving love that we didn't deserve in the first place. So what could we possibly do to lose it? My prayer is that what we've seen about ourselves from the narrative of the cross wouldn't be just something that we try to run from or cover up, but that it would be something that we turn our eyes toward so that we can see clearly and trust fully what it says about the unconditional, unwavering, eternal love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue, tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave His Son to win. His erring child He reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, Were every stalk on earth a quill And every man a scribe by trade To write the love of God above Would drain the ocean dry Nor could the scroll contain the whole Though stretched from sky to sky Amen We're going to respond to the love of God tonight By partaking of communion But maybe you're here tonight And you're listening to this live stream And you can say that you've never really accepted the love of God on your behalf. That you've never accepted Christ's sacrifice for you in place of you. And instead, you've been trying to muster up enough strength, muster up enough love and exertion and good, good deeds to try to make yourself approvable to God in order to try and balance the scales of your sin. And Listen, I'm here to tell you that that won't work. The toxicity of your life, the toxicity of our own sin is too great. And so maybe you would be here tonight and you would say, listen, I want to surrender my life. I want to reorient my life around this sacrifice that Christ made for me. And I want to trust it alone for my salvation. And I want to trust it to reconcile me back to God so that I can be in right relationship with him. Listen, if that's you tonight, And if you're watching this live stream, we've got moderators in the chat right now who would love to pray with you. But listen, in your own words, just pray right now. Jesus said in Mark chapter one, to repent and believe the gospel. Listen, Jesus is the gospel. Jesus's life, death, and resurrection is the gospel. And you need to trust him and him alone for your salvation. And then every day from this moment forward, The the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf will change your life. So I encourage you, reach out to one of the moderators, say, "Uh, listen, I want to pray. I've prayed to receive this free gift of salvation that Christ has made available for me on my behalf. But for the rest of us, we're going to partake of communion now. So if you have juice and crackers with you, we're going to partake of the communion emblems. And I want to read to you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. Well, we're going to respond in closing here tonight with a couple of worship songs. And this is where we leave Jesus here on Good Friday. We leave him wrapped in burial linens and put in a tomb where a stone blocked the entrance. And we're going to leave him there tonight. But we as Christians know that that's not where the story ends. And we know that come Sunday morning, Jesus will be risen from the grave. And so we're going to celebrate that Sunday morning. And let me just encourage you, wherever you're at right now, Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. In the words of D.A. Carson, there's nothing a good resurrection can't fix. Amen?